so far one of the great joys for me of uh, doing the live music is that I get to control the uh, amounts and uh, how loud it is and all of that because I like to hear you sing. Uh, it is a blessing to me. It is uh, should be a blessing to each of us uh, as well. Uh, quickly, this is totally not part of the sermon, but when we sing, there are three things that are happening. It, often nowadays we tend to mostly focus on what's happening within and my own feelings and my sense, or maybe we also think about how uh, vertically we're with our singing to God as well in our worship and our praise. But usually that's about where it step, stops. But when we sing, especially when we're gathered together as the church, when we're singing good songs that are proclaiming truth, what we are also doing is not simply singing it for ourselves to remind ourselves. We're not simply singing it to worship God, though both of those are good things. We are proclaiming these truths to those around us, to those who are gathered here. We are proclaiming that to others, that um, the Lord is good. When we sing the song like his mercy is more, that's not just about me. It's not just about praising God, although both of those, again, are good things. It is about proclaiming that to those around. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. And so it is good for us to remember that. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 4. And this morning we'll be starting in verse 18. And last week, as we dug in, as the, we read the verses right before this, we saw Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 1 to 2. Uh, by moving to the region of Naphtali and Zebulun and uh, going to that region of darkness and bringing this great light that will dawn upon them. And... Uh, he went there after the arrest of John the Baptist, and he, uh, he went and proclaimed the same message that John proclaimed, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so this morning, we've been working for eight weeks, ten weeks, uh, eight weeks, because this is uh, number nine. We've been working for eight weeks through, uh, systematically through the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we're going to be completing chapter four. And this is really the completion of the prologue, the introduction to Jesus in his ministry. And things get just kick off immediately, starting in chapter 5, where Jesus begins to teach, with, uh, because we have the Sermon on the Mount. And then we have three chapters, uh, 5, 6, and 7, that are just Jesus teaching. That's all it is. And so this is the ending of this prologue that establishes who Jesus is, what he is doing, uh, who he has called, and why, and... Um, the work that he has come to fulfill. And so in this passage this morning, we see the time when Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, forsaking all to be a disciple of Jesus. It's a call and a response that we need to take seriously ourselves. In a world full of comforts, will we forsake everything to answer Jesus' call to follow him? So Matthew, chapter 4, starting in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray and let's dig in. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. Father, thank you that we can gather no matter our number, that we can worship you freely and without fear from uh, government reprisal or from uh, cultural groups who uh, otherwise hate us. Father, we are grateful for these freedoms. May we not take these for granted. Father, as we dig into this, Lord, speak through your word. Um, may we be changed because of it. May our hearts be stirred because of Christ's call to follow him. May we learn from the disciples as we are able. And Lord, may our community be changed because of your word this morning. Shut my mouth if I am in danger of speaking out of turn, Lord. And may this church be blessed because of your uh, proclaimed word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, if you recall, going way back to the beginning, uh, probably the first sermon, maybe the first couple of sermons, I brought up these major themes that are being brought out of the book of Matthew. And starting in chapter one, Matthew makes some of these themes like, number one, that God is sovereign over all of history. He shows this through the genealogy, showing how God worked everything together in order to bring the, the Messiah he worked out all of history so that it would be prepared for this good news to spread all across the known world. So God was sovereign over all of history. He was not surprised. And not only is he sovereign over all of history, he's sovereign over people. He was sovereign over the decisions of a good man in Joseph. As Joseph decided to divorce Mary because she had become pregnant outside of their wedlock, um, God stopped him in a dream and told him, don't do this thing. We saw that God is sovereign over pagan magicians in the Magi, the wise men, in the fact that they came to worship the Messiah because of God's sovereign hand over nature to give them a sign of the star in the sky that they could follow. And then we see that God was sovereign even over wicked men like King Herod, that as Herod was seeking to destroy the Christ child, God was not shocked or surprised by it, and rather that he led uh, Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus to safety in Egypt. So then in that same chapter, we see uh, Matthew making this point that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And we see this over and over again. If you have been reading Matthew, if you've been following along, you see this was done so he could fulfill. This was done so that as the prophet spoke, this would be fulfilled. He did it, he did it in our passage last week. He did it, did it over and over and over again all throughout. And he continues to do it even after this establishing who Jesus is. He continues to say this was done so that um, 
the scripture might be fulfilled in him. And so Jesus is that promised Messiah from the Old Testament, the one that the prophets foretold. And uh, the third major point is that Jesus is the king. And he's not just the king of the Jews, but of the entire world, that his kingdom will be one that comes uh, where people from all people's tongues and nations will be part of his kingdom. And it's not simply the Jews. It's not just one people group. It's not just one nation that he will be king over, but it will be the entire world. The fourth one, which we will also touch on a little bit today, is that evil is rampant in this world. We cannot escape that. But the Messiah is mighty to overcome all wickedness. And we will see that beginning today and then continuing on. If you really want to see Jesus' power to overcome wickedness, uh, overcome sin, and overcome uh, uh, Satan and the demons, really, if you, uh, Mark's gospel instead of Matthew's focuses on that a lot. You will see it in Matthew's gospel as well. But Mark's gospel is very focused on Jesus' power over the forces of darkness. And so if you wanted to really uh, lean into that, I recommend you would read Mark's gospel. And this morning, he's going to introduce a fifth major theme. And that major theme is radical discipleship. Jesus' disciples are meant to be, in some ways, considered radical. And not in the sense that we would consider radical um, in the sense of blowing things up, of, of zealotry, of uh, jihad, like in Islam, but rather radical in that there are no lengths uh, that they would stop going to in order to follow Christ. That neither life nor death, riches nor poverty, none of it will stop them from following Jesus. So in this first chunk of the passage, the first uh, verses, we see Jesus calling his disciples. We, it is the first four, and there are two sets of brothers. We have Andrew and Simon, who's also called Peter, which in the minds of the New Testament Christians for whom this was written, this account, that should spark it. Oh, Peter, he is the one that Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. He is the leader of this new uh, group of Christians. And then we also see James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They're also known as the sons of thunder. And that's likely because of their temper, that they were, they were some of the ones who were quick to say, Jesus, should we call down fire on Samaria and judgment? And he's like, no, 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 no. So... Uh, these are the first disciples that Jesus, is, Jesus calls. And three out of these four are part of Jesus' inner circle of the 12. You have Peter, James, and John. They're the ones who go with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration where he is revealed fully, where the, the veil, in a sense of his humanity, is peeled back so that they can see his godhood. And so he calls these first disciples, three of whom will become his inner circle. And what do we see their response to his call, follow me. The word that is highlighted for both of them, it's immediate. Immediately, they left behind their livelihoods. Immediately, they left behind their father and their livelihoods and followed him. Jesus' call to follow him is not one to where delayed obedience is something that is going to be uh, acceptable. We see over in, we see in, this, uh, in the Gospels, in this uh, same book, where a young man comes forward and he says, uh, Teacher, I want to follow you, but let me bury my father first. And Jesus says, Let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. 
and the young man walked away. We see as well in this, uh, in the same book, that Jesus tells people, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must die to himself. He must pick up his cross, an instrument of torture and death, and follow me. Now, this isn't the, that sweet, loving message that so often like we kind of have come to expect in the ways that we talk about Jesus. Oh, Jesus just loves you so very much. It's, he doesn't care, uh, whatever, just come to Jesus. But rather, he is saying, if you want to follow me, you must follow me and me alone. There's no middle ground. There's no hanging on to what was left behind. There's no desiring to go back for that. And if those desires crop up, we are to put those to death for the sake of continuing to follow Christ. So these first disciples, when Jesus called them to follow him, they left behind their jobs, their families. They may have even left behind uh, inheritances if their families were not uh, were not supportive of them following this rabbi, this teacher, they were willing to leave all behind in order to follow the Christ. How often do we refuse to do the same? And also notice in this that Jesus says, follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. It's not follow me because you're great evangelists already. Follow me because you're a good person. Follow me because you have your life figured out pretty well. It's follow me and I will make you into what you need to be. So often we cling to our old selves. So often we think I need to clean myself up to come to Christ. So often we think that others are going to need to clean themselves up in order to come to church. But that's never been what Jesus has been about. He's always been about making us into something new. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit now that comes into our lives when we are Christians. He renews us. He changes us. He changes our desires and makes us desire the things of God. In the Old Testament, it was promised that when the helper comes, God himself will take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And that on these hearts of flesh, God will inscribe the very law onto our hearts so that we can love the law instead of rejecting it. That we will no longer have to correct one another because in our very desires, they will be changed because of this heart of flesh. And so Jesus has always been about making new things. Not cleaning up the old thing, but making something new. And you see what Jesus is doing here. They are fishermen. They are not men of great means, but they are men who work with their hands. How many of the people in this room are that kind of people? So many because of this region. So many of our church members are people who work with their hands. And Jesus is not one who's simply looking for the elites. In fact, over and over again, he tends to turn away those who are elite because they think that they can rely on the brain or they think they can rely on, uh, and some of us, we think we can rely on the work of our hands to bring ourselves forward. But also with the elites, like we, they think they can rely on their money, their status, their power. They think they can do those things, but that is not what Christ has called us to. He's called us to rely on him. And what does Jesus do? He takes that thing that they are already doing 
uh, they're fishermen. And Jesus remakes it into something new so that now they will be fishers of men. May he do the same for each of us. And then continuing on to the next section, uh, verse 23 through 25, we see Matthew point out three major points of Jesus's uh, ministry. What does Jesus do? He goes about teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. Jesus is, those are the main three points of what Jesus does. He teaches, he preaches the gospel, and he heals people. And so this is the introduction, and we're going to see this now all throughout the rest of the book, that Jesus teaches, preaches, and heals. But what is he proclaiming? It says he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, which ties in with repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Do we know what the word gospel means? Like if we were to translate it, instead of holding to the word gospel, if we were to translate that openly, it would be good news. And so what is Jesus proclaiming? He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And we'll see this more and more as he dives into his teaching, uh, as all of the parables tell these truths about the kingdom of heaven. And there are all these little gospel nuggets trying to help us understand what this good news really is. But what then is this good news of the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming? It's the good news that the kingdom of God is no longer kept from us because of our sin. The gospel, the good news is that Jesus has made a way for us to be welcomed back into that community, into that kingdom. And that all of the sin and the strife that is caused by our sin, all of that can be removed and restored. And leading into next week and the weeks that follow, Jesus is not simply saying, though, that you can, it's just a good thing and like welcome in, nothing's going to change. Starting next week, we're going to see Jesus proclaiming the law, similarly to Moses, but in giving a new interpretation, the interpretation that was supposed to have been understood from the beginning. And he pushes in and he says, do you think you're a good person? He says, because you're not. And not to get too far ahead, but he says, oh, you say, I've never murdered anyone. And Jesus says, being angry with someone unrighteously, that's murder. Sin is a matter of your heart. It's not a matter of your actions. And so Jesus is proclaiming this good news that this kingdom is here. But he also proclaims the bad news that in ourselves, there's nothing we can do. We can't work. We can't remake ourselves. It's not the work of our hands that gets us there. It's not how loudly we sing. It's not how many times we sit, listen to sermons. It's not how, it, how many times we're in the church building or uh, whether we've been there our entire lives. It is about whether Christ's work has been done for us, whether we are found in Christ and his work. And this is what Jesus goes and preaches. He proclaims that he is the eternal son of God that he is equal with the Father. He proclaims all of these things, and that is why he, is en he ends up being killed. That is the charge that is brought against him, blasphemy, that he is misrepresenting God and claiming to be God. And so it is because of this ministry that he is killed, this preaching of the good news of the kingdom. And then in verse 24, we see his fame starts to spread all throughout Syria, which is 
not to get too far into the geography because I, I realized I lost you guys last year, last week with the geography. But Syria is just a bit further north of Galilee. So it's the areas even outside of Galilee that his fame is spreading. And they brought him all of the sick, all of those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, those who were oppressed by demons, those having seizures and those who were paralyzed. And he healed them. All those who were brought to Christ, he healed. And what we see here, this is not simply just the physical healing, but we do see that. We see the sicknesses. We see uh, those afflicted with various diseases and pain. We see that physical healing. But we also see those who are oppressed by demons. We see that spiritual healing, that Jesus is powerful over the forces of darkness that he is not shocked and that he is not surprised or scared of Satan's wiles. And then we also see that Jesus also brings a mental healing for those who have the issues like for having seizures or epilepsy. Um, in some translations, they translate that as those who are insane, uh, though those don't equal out exactly. Um, but those are some translations. And that, as I was uh, just thinking over this, this morning, wrestling with it, trying to figure out how to continue onward. Uh, I'm out back, I'm walking, and I'm just studying and uh, prepping, prepping my heart. And I get a call from my wife, and she's like, David, Isaiah seizing. So as I'm talking about this verse, we're Jesus heals those with seizures. My own child is having a seizure. Um, he has, it's just the, the child, the uh, pediatric seizures. So it's the third time he's had them. But um, knowing that it doesn't actually ultimately hurt him doesn't make it any less scary. And I had to ask God, it shows that you heal those with seizures. Will you heal my son? And there's the struggle with that. There always is. And there always will be. We see this when we're actually faced with the pain. Sometimes we struggle to recognize and struggle to fully accept and embrace the fact that Jesus does heal. And it's not always in this life. Um, but Jesus heals. We see this great and glorious truth and revelation that our bodies will be resurrected that all sin and darkness will be uh, cast away with sin, death, um, and Satan. All of them are destroyed and cast into the lake of fire for good. We see Jesus coming forward, holding forth these keys. And he says, behold, I have the keys to sin, er, uh, to death, and to Hades. They're going to be destroyed. And so we have this great hope as Christians of the world that is not affected by sin. Now in our lives today, we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with the effects of sin. And that includes sicknesses, as we can see by how many people are missing this morning. But we can rest assured knowing that Christ has overcome it all. And we see that Christ cares to heal these things. 
So then in the final verse, we see that great crowds followed him. And now, again, just a little bit of geography. We got Galilee, which we talked about last week, which is right on the Sea of Galilee, but also inland as well. So we have people coming from this, uh, it used to be primarily Jewish region. It was part of the nation of Israel, the northern nation. But now it also has um, those who are not Jewish. It has a lot of outsiders. We then see the Decapolis. If you know anything uh, from uh, languages, that's Greek. Uh, and the Decapolis is 10 cities. It's 10 Greek cities who are kind of holdouts of Greek culture. And they're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're on the other side of the Jordan River. And we see these 10 Greek cities, people coming from those and following him. We see people coming from Jerusalem and Judea, which is the more uh, high class, the upper class part of where the Jewish people still were living uh, because that's where the temple was. That was where... The Pharisees were primarily located as well. Those who would interpret the law, those who would study the scribes, that was the major seat of power and influence. So we see those who are the lowborns, in a sense, in Galilee, those who are outsiders completely, the Greeks from the Decapolis, and then we see those who are the higherborns, in a sense, as well. And then we see just this generalized uh, term, and those from beyond the Jordan. He was followed by all of these. And this leans into this idea that Jesus is not just a a small, he's not just the savior or the king over this small section. He is the savior and king over all of the earth. And Jesus's proclamation of the gospel, even though it's first to the Jews and then to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, it's not just for the Jews. And praise God for that. I say this over and over. We are benefactors of that. And so we see Jesus' fame spreading, which um, as we continue on, we'll see that that starts to become a problem. That the more famous he becomes, the harder it is for him to do ministry because crowds are flocking. People are seeking to kill him. All of these things are happening. So, To end this morning, I am not going to give you specific application. I'm not going to do any of that. But I will present you with some questions to reflect upon. Uh, The first question is, what has been my response to Jesus' call to follow him? Has it been immediate obedience, like the disciples leaving behind everything in order to follow him? Has it been reluctant submission, like, yeah, he's God, I guess I have to. Has it been an outright rejection of him? Though for most of us, for those of us in here, we're regular who are here, so that's not really our, us. So has it been immediate obedience or a reluctant submission? The second question is, could I be described as a radical disciple? In looking at what the disciples laid down and thinking of the sayings of Jesus about those who have to follow, who follow him, Could I be in that group? Could someone look at my life and say, wow, they've given up a lot. All for the sake of this person that I'm not even sure ever existed. Number three is, am I being shaped by Jesus and his teachings? Am I being remade into something new? 
like Jesus telling the disciples that he will change them from fishermen to fisher, fishers of men. Am I being changed? Is there something new about me? Is Jesus changing my life? Or am I shaping Jesus into what I want him to be? Now, I won't go too deep into this, but so often, uh, this is one of the reasons why I struggle with images of Jesus. It's because what I've noticed is when I look at images of Jesus, he always seems to look like he's been made in the image of the person who made him, who painted that painting, who took that picture or whatever. That's why we have white Jesuses and black Jesuses and Asian Jesuses and all of these sorts of different ones for remaking Jesus into an image that we think he should look like. And I, I think there's a great struggle, a great issue in that that we should take seriously. Um, our forefathers, our forebears, the Protestants, they took that seriously. Uh, in our study last week, we studied a little bit of John Knox. And one of the things of John Knox, he's the great Scottish reformer. One of the things that John Knox, as he went and he preached in these former uh, cathedrals of Catholics, people would rise up at the end of his sermons and cast down the images and destroy them. And I fear that sometimes we have kind of embraced that ourselves perhaps out of not wanting to offend people, or perhaps out of this desire to uh, have Jesus be really, really relatable to us. And that's not just with pictures and paintings, that's with uh, media, uh, social media campaigns, but like he gets us to where it all talks about how Jesus was a rebel too, or Jesus was, had anxiety, and all these things that are trying to appeal to our human sensibilities. Uh, we have it to some extent in shows like The Chosen to where it can go a little extra far and like having Jesus asking for help and determining the Sermon on the Mount and doing those things. We're making Jesus so much into our image, wanting to relate with him so deeply that we lose all reverence for the fact that, yes, he is fully human. And there's something that is very sweet about knowing that he had to, uh, he had to dress his own wounds. He danced, probably. I know we're Baptists and we don't really agree with maybe our history, but Jesus probably danced at the wedding feast, looking at his culture. So there's something that's very sweet about knowing that, and that knowing that we have a high priest, like it says in Hebrews, who can sympathize with us completely because he was human. He's fully human. He is fully human and fully God. But sometimes we overemphasize the human and trying to make him look like us and trying to make it to where uh, we can kind of just let ourselves off the hook a little bit from following these things. So am I being shaped by Jesus or am I shaping Jesus into what I want him to be? Question number four, in what ways has Jesus remade me and my desires? Think about this. Have some introspection. Have my desires changed since the time that I said I became a Christian? Is there evidence of me being born again, of my heart being renewed, my heart of stone being replaced with a heart of flesh, one that desires the good things of God? Even though there are times where I still fall to sin, there is a hatred in my heart for it, not a love. And I seek to destroy that 
in me. So am, in what ways is Jesus changing you? Is he making you into something new? Question number five, am I holding on to things that Christ has called me to let go of? And these don't necessarily have to be bad things. I, I, uh, family is a very good thing. But we have to be willing to say, Christ, you're better. It is not to say, I have to full, right out reject my family. We're not a cult. We're not saying you have to cut everyone out of your life who is not a Christian. But we are saying, is your family dragging you back out? Are friends dragging you back into the darkness after you've seen the light? Are there uh, comforts that are keeping you from responding to Jesus' call, to his commission, at the, which is at the end of this book? Go and make disciples of every nation. Are our desires for comfort having us hold on to more money so that we can have more comfort instead of giving? I'm not saying giving to the church. I'm saying giving to missions, to things outside of this. I'm not, this isn't a sermon on giving. Not, not, not for the church's sake, at least. Are we clinging so desperately to these comforts? Which, one of the things I've realized uh, as I've traveled a little bit, uh, and I've also, I heard a missionary put it this way, that he learned this, that air conditioning is not a right, it's a privilege. And working with Ralph in the HVAC, uh, we definitely consider it to be a right. And in America... If you want a really solid job that's not going to go anywhere, become an HVAC tech because <laughs> everyone wants it. People can't live without it anymore. But are we willing to let go of these comforts in order to see the name of Christ glorified in all of the nations of the earth? There are people all throughout the world who are still unreached. And it's, it's far worse than what our numbers often will say. Because many of those who have been said to have been reached have been reached with like the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. And so what things are we still clinging to that Christ has called us to let go of, to follow him? I personally know of missionaries who were held back by their families from going, Christian families, saying they didn't want them to go into where they were almost creating rifts in the family because they were willing to forsake even their Christian families in order to go and make the name of Christ known. Have we held back family members from doing what God has said is the right thing to do because we don't want to lose them and we're clinging to them? Question number six, is my life different in light of the reality of the good news of the kingdom and the power and work of Christ, as we saw that Jesus healed as he is powerful over the forces of darkness. Is my life different in light of this reality that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is the son of God, that he is powerful to save, that he is powerful to heal, that he is powerful over sin, Satan, and death our three greatest enemies. Is my life different? And then finally, how does, question number seven, how does and how should Jesus's care and compassion for those who are hurting affect me? 
in it, we see in this uh, text this morning, we see that Jesus healed all those who were brought to him. He cared for the people. As we see in other texts especially, he has compassion on those who are hurting. How does this affect me? Am I one who looks to Christ as someone who cares? Or am I one who looks to Jesus primarily as a judge? And one that I hope that he will find me okay at the end of of my life? Or do I look to Jesus and see that he is a sympathetic high priest who knows our weaknesses and our struggles? He is one who cares. How does and how should this affect me? Do I care for others with the same care that Jesus has shown me? Do I extend that to others? Brothers and sisters, the good news of the kingdom is that Jesus has taken our treason upon himself. And that he has borne the consequence of our sin, which is eternal death and the wrath of God. Jesus bore that and overcame it himself. And the good news is that he has brought us into the light of the kingdom of God. And we see that especially realized in Revelation at the end of the age. That we might be redeemed to God and walk among him. And then have him walk among us in the same way that he walked among Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. May we trust that. May we believe that. And may we heed Christ's call to follow him. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are weak in ourselves. In our own strength, we can do nothing. God, renew us, reshape us, continue to show us how to be remade into the image of Christ. Sanctify us, Lord, that we may know your truth, that we may glorify your name, and that we may let go of the nets to leave our nets and our family behind if we must, because Christ is so much better. Lord, may we glorify you above all else. Father, give this church new life, just as you have given each of us new life. And Lord, may we be filled with the zeal for others to know this. We love you, Father. Give us the strength and the faith to follow Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.